Well, good evening. How are you all tonight? Welcome. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson, and uh, we're very glad you're here on this uh, Tuesday night. It's kind of a nice night, and uh, uh, we want to uh, welcome you to Christ's community. Uh, we are uh, very, very glad you're here. It's just a delightful day we've had together, and uh, you're in for a wonderful treat tonight. Um, uh, I am just so delighted that uh, you came and uh, delighted you're going to get to hear uh, Dr. Tim Keller speak uh, this evening. So, again, I hope you're ready to go and you're in for a, a wonderful treat. As a community of faith, uh, we just really believe at Christ's community that uh, our faith intersects all of life, uh, that our, our faith impacts everything we are and everything we do. Uh, and as a community, we are deeply committed to see our faith, how it touches our minds, how it impassions our hearts, and how it yields to hands that serve our community and the common good of our city. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I think uh, you will really grasp tonight, wherever you are in your spiritual life, is that we have a longing for authenticity and coherence and depth in our life. And Dr. Tim Keller, I think, really embodies this and the work he does. I want to introduce him to you very briefly tonight because you came to hear him and not me. Um, but we are just uh, very, very excited that you have the opportunity to hear someone of Dr. Tim Keller's stature. Um, Tim is uh, a man who is uh, a man of great thought. That's what I love about you, Tim. He's a thoughtful person who has thought much about life and the intersection of culture uh, and faith. And uh, he is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in uh, Manhattan in New York City. That is the big apple for all of us that are uh, used to the small apple out here. Um, and uh, he has written several books, and most of us probably have heard of him through that. Um, the book that uh, most of us have probably read or heard about is called The Reason for God, uh, and it's a New York Times bestseller. I've had the joy of interacting with Tim over the years and have served with him in different places. He's always been a great encouragement to me. Uh, his life uh, has influenced mine and our community of faith as Redeemer Presbyterian Church is a wonderful model for many of us who embrace faith and embrace it with a passion for our city. So I want to uh, introduce you to you tonight, uh, Dr. Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller uh, is a man of great thought, and he's going to engage with us uh, a title of a talk called The Reason for God. So let's give Tim Keller a very warm Christ community in Kansas City welcome. Tim? Steps. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Now, I'm going to uh, take you for a ride, and then you're going to get a chance to ask questions. Tom will come back up here, and we will field questions. And uh, if, during the time in which I'm talking, if you suddenly say, well, I wish I could ask uh, this about that, text it to that number. Okay? Same number, by the way, on both <laughs> You could try it twice if you want. Uh, and uh, we'll, we probably won't be able to, I know we won't be able to ha handle all the questions, but it'll be, uh, as they come in, we'll choose some and we'll have some time after this. Um, what is the reasoning, what is the reasoning that leads people to believe in God in general and Christianity in particular? I'm, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm also honored to be asked to uh, tackle such a formidable project as to answer that question in one address. 
And, <clears throat> and really, what is the reasoning that leads people to believe in God in particular and Christianity in ge- uh, God in general and Christianity in particular? And that means I'm just going to have to take you on quite a ride. So... <laughs> Uh, and it's, it is quite a ride because it'll go high, it'll go low, it'll be, it'll be, um, it'll have to do with the mind, it'll have to do with the heart. In fact, that's how I want to start. But just for a second, why, why should we take the time to do this? I would like you to consider that knowing the reasoning that leads people to belief in God and Christianity is critical, more critical than it's ever been, no matter who you are on the spectrum of belief. Because we live in an increasingly pluralistic society. So, for example, if you're at one end of the spectrum, if you are, um, how do I say, if you are a solid skeptic, you are absolutely firmly, soundly skeptical <clears throat> about belief in God. You <clears throat> particularly need to hear out what I'm going to say tonight because you need to have some way of understanding why so many people are religious. I mean, we, in the world right now, religious belief is not actually waning. It's, uh, it's, across the world, it's very, very strong and maybe growing, depends on the part of the world. And if we're going to live in an increasingly secular uh, and pluralistic society in which you've got all kinds of different people with all sorts of different beliefs, if we're going to get along well, if we're going to have a coherent society, we have to do everything we can to not only understand one another's uh, beliefs, but have some respect for them. And one of the things that I have to say is distressing about the, the, the new atheist books that have come out in the last five or six years uh, by Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, folks like that. The new atheist books don't just simply say religion is wrong. They actually say that respect for religion is wrong. That's what's new about those books. It's not just they're saying, oh, religion and belief in God is wrong, but they, even to respect religion. Religion is something that is awful. It needs to be banned. It needs to be put away. And to, if you're going to have a cohesive pluralistic society, to counsel some people to utterly disdain and belittle the beliefs of other people is a recipe for social disaster. If we're really going to get along, those of you who really do not believe in Christianity have to do everything in your power to come to understand as best as you can and respect, even if you disagree, with the, re- with the reasoning that underlies Christian belief. On the other hand... Increasingly, and I know, I'm ta- I know I'm talking to people in the Midwest at this point. Um, if you're my age, and a lot of you look like you are, and you grew up out here, you grew up in which pretty much everybody went to church or everybody said they were a Christian. Increasingly, that's not going to be the case. More and more and more, people are not going to be Christians because they grew up in it and everybody believed the same thing. More and more, people are only going to be Christians if they have good reasons for believing it. And therefore, even if you are my age and you grew up just because you're a Christian because, well, you know, it's, I was raised that way and I never thought of any other way, today, more and more people are going to say, why are you a Christian? Why, should, why believe the things you believe? And unless you know how to give good answers, you're not going to be very helpful to people. In fact, increasingly, you better have good reasons because more and more people are going to say, well, why be a Christian? So no matter who we are on the spectrum of faith, what I'm about to go through tonight, you ought to know something about this. And it is a, it's a survey because our time is limited. But now what I want to do is I want to give you the reasons why to believe in God and Christianity. And I'd like to start with some ground clearing and then give you four stages or steps toward belief. 
ground clearing and then four stages. Here's what I mean by ground clearing. Everybody believes and disbelieves in God because of three kinds of reasoning. Your belief and or your disbelief is based on three kinds of reasoning, what I'll call rational reasoning, personal reasoning, and social reasoning. First of all, when I say rational reasoning, or what, what we would call reasoning proper, rational reasoning means you're thinking out the logic of it. And you're asking these questions. Does, do these beliefs fit the facts? And do these beliefs fit together? That is, are they consistent? Do they contradict each other? Or are they consistent? You're looking for logical consistency. Do these beliefs fit the facts? Do these beliefs fit together? Then you have personal reasoning. And what I mean by that is we are not brains in vats. We are embodied real people. And nobody believes in God or disbelieves in God or disbelieves in God strictly for intellectual and rational reasons. Uh, We adopt our beliefs not only because they are rational and logical, we also adopt beliefs because... They, they fit our experience, they fit our intuitions, they fit our aspirations, they help us understand ourselves. And then thirdly, social reasons. And what I mean by that is we better be honest about the fact that belief and disbelief usually is to a great degree socially conditioned. And that means that uh, beliefs are plausible in the mouths of people that you admire. It's very hard to find somebody who has come to faith in God unless they met without meeting some people that they really, really, the people had real personal credibility and they believed in God. And it's very hard for me to ever talk to anybody who's gone into real skepticism about God. And if I ask them about how that pilgrimage happened, almost always it happened because they also ran into people who had high levels of personal credibility and who disbelieved in God. And because of that, their disbelief seemed plausible because the people were credible to them. So there's social reasons... There's personal reasons, and there's rational or intellectual reasons why everybody believes or disbelieves. And therefore, certainty. Some people are sure there's a God. Some people are sure there's no God. Some people are sure you can't be sure. Some people are sure you can't even be sure whether you can be sure. In other words, everybody's sure. How did that happen? Certainty is cumulative. Outside of mathematics, in mathematics, you can prove things. You can give absolute proof, demonstrable proof, no doubt proof. But there's no other field, there's no no other realm, not even in the hard sciences, where you can actually have absolute and complete and total proof. Oh, no. For example, uh, all science is based on faith. There are no non-circular arguments, there are no non-circular arguments that your memory works. You know, you feel like you've been here for years and years, that you were born and you've grown into adulthood, but it could be that you just came into existence five minutes ago and your memory's programmed to think that you're 40 or 50 or 60 years old or whatever you are. And the only way for you to check out whether your memory works is by using your memory, which means you're begging the question. You're assuming the thing that you're supposed to be trying to uh, demonstrate. There's no non-circular arguments for saying my cognitive faculties work, that I'm really seeing what's really out there. So, well, if I can touch it, if I can taste it, if I can see it, if I can smell it, then it's there. Didn't any of you ever see The Matrix? <laughs> and The Matrix, not the second and third Matrix were awful, but the first Matrix, which was really good. 
The Matrix was not a science fiction uh, movie, primarily. It was Philosophy 101. Philosophy 101 is you cannot prove anything. You can't, I can't prove that I'm not a butterfly dreaming I'm a 60-year-old white man. <laughs> I can't prove that. You can't prove anything. Your moral intuitions, the things that you're basing your life on, that's right, that's wrong. That's not, those, they, they aren't scientifically verifiable, are they? No, no, no. Well, since nobody can prove anything, does that mean nobody can be certain about anything? Oh, well, that's not true. Of course you can be. There's all kinds of things you're certain of. Why? It's cumulative. Thinking and experience and friends, rational, personal, and social, uh, cumulative experiences and thinking and, and uh, lead to the place where you can be certain. So, for example, but it takes time. See, what I'm trying to show you here tonight is you can become certain that, there, that God is real and that Christianity is true, but it's not because of one or two slam-dunk proofs. There are no such things. There's also no slam-dunk proofs that I'm going to try to show you that Christianity isn't true or that there is no God. But you can come to certainty cumulatively. Maybe the best illustration would be this. Uh, let's just say if you're from the business world and you have to hire a person for a, a job, you have a job opening, you need to uh, uh, hire that person wouldn't it be wonderful, as you looked at all the applicants, wouldn't it be wonderful to say, I'm not going to hire a person until I'm absolutely sure this person is exactly the right person for the job and will do a wonderful job. But I'm not going to hire anybody until I'm absolutely certain, until I have proof. Well, you're going to wait forever. You'll never hire anybody again. You ought to get into something else like ministry. <laughs> we don't have to think about those things. Oops, wait a minute, you do. Oh, no. So there's no way out. And here's what you're going to have to do. You can reason to probability. You can use your mind. You can look at the, uh, the tests. You can talk to references. You can, you can get to the place where you look at your applications and you can reason to the place with your head that this person is probably the right one. So then you hire her. And it's not until you hire her and she works for two years and you have a personal experience of her that you can finally come to the conclusion two years later she was the right person. Now you're certain. But you couldn't have been certain until you experienced it in a sense. Don't you see? You can reason to the area of probability, to the place of probability, but you have to commit into certainty. There has to be, there has to be a combination of things, the rational, the personal, and the social. Now, having said that, that's ground clearing. Don't expect a proof. But on the other hand, don't say, well, I don't have to believe in God unless I can prove him. The real problem, of course, is you can't prove anything. So why believe in God and Christianity? Here we go. When I say there's four steps, I'm not saying everybody goes through these steps in this linear way. My experience from seeing a lot of people become Christians over the last 40 years of my life, 20-some years in New York City where a lot of people are pretty skeptical of Christianity, tells me that all of these, maybe not in this order, but all of these steps have to um, be put, all these steps have to be passed through. And here's what they four are. I'll just name them and then I'll just run through them until my time runs out. Uh, belief in God and Christianity happens when you become to see the faith it takes to doubt it, the problems you have without it, the beauty you see within it, and the community, community created by it. When you see the faith it takes to doubt it, Christianity and belief in God, the problems you see you have without it, the beauty you see within it, and the community created by it, 
And when you see those four things, you pass through those four things, you can come to certainty. You can come to assurance. You can come to faith. Let me show you the first one, the faith that takes the doubt. And what I mean by that is this. There are the first stage through which most people who get to belief go through is they have to deal with the objections and the arguments that say God can't, there can't be a God or Christianity can't be true. And you have to look at those arguments. And I'll just give you two of them because they're extremely uh, uh, popular arguments and they're extremely powerful arguments and they're extremely uh, prevalent arguments. But I want you to see that... <laughs> In those, not only those, do those arguments, not only do those arguments not work, but inside them is embedded a leap of faith that doesn't let you know what it is. Now, what I mean by that is, um, nobody can actually doubt Christianity, except from a platform of faith in something else, which usually will not acknowledge itself as faith, and so hidden in. Every objection to Christianity, hidden in every doubt about Christianity, is an unprovable faith assumption. And many, many, many people have moved into faith in Christianity when they've recognized the faith it takes to doubt Christianity. A lot of people say, oh, I can't be a Christian, I don't have enough faith, until they realize that the doubt is based on an incredible amount of faith that they're exercising at that very moment. I know what I just said is a bit of a mouthful, so let me try to show you in two, two cases. Here's two really strong and prevalent arguments that say there can't be a God or Christianity can't be true. The first one goes like this. It's got to do with the exclusivity of truth. The first one says there can't just be one true religion. There can't just be one group of people who have the truth. Uh, truth is dependent on what various people find for themselves. And so uh, there just can't be one true God. There just can't be one true religion. And if you think you do have the truth and you think you do have the true religion, that's bad for the world. We live in a pluralistic world and there's a lot of division and violence and it's poisonous for human society. So you need to admit there is no one true faith. There is no one true God. There is no one true religion and you need to get, off, get over it. That's the objection. Now people who make this objection usually use a couple of different illustrations. One illustration tries to argue that all religions are basically the same. The other religion tries to argue, uh, the other, excuse me, illustration tries to argue that all religions are only, only, um, uh, only have part of the truth. So w one illustration tries to say all religions are basically getting at the same truth so there's no one true religion. The other says all religions basically only see part of the truth so there's no one true religion. You know what those two illustrations are? One is this. Um, think of spiritual reality as a mountain. And every religion is a different path up to the top of the mountain. Now down here where we are, the religions look like they contradict. Because here's, here's Hinduism going off to the left. And here's Christianity going off to the right. In other words, they're making claims that seem to be contradictory. So you say, ah, they can't both be right. One must be right. One must be wrong. Um, however, the only way to get to the top of the mountain is to zigzag. And so therefore, in this illustration, every religion is zigging and zagging, and they look like they're contradicting each other, but they all go to the same place. They all get to the top. They're all going to the same spiritual reality. They're all going to God. That's one illustration. The other illustration is the story of a king, uh, I guess in... Uh, uh, you know, a, a different part of the world than Kansas who is looking at an elephant 
And six blind men are in his court, and he asks the blind men, what does the elephant look like? And they all go up to the elephant, and each one grabs hold of a different part of the elephant. So one has the trunk, one has the tail, one has the leg, one has the ear. And when they start to, uh, you know, one says, well, the elephant is, uh, is uh, you know, like a snake. Another one says, no, an elephant's sort of like a tree. Another one says, no, an elephant is sort of like a frog. And uh, because they are holding on to different parts of the elephant, they think the whole elephant is like the part that they are feeling. And only the king can see that every blind man only has a grip on part of the elephant. And the illustration goes, that's the why. That's why all the different religions say different things. Uh, every one of them has part of the truth, but nobody has the truth. There is no one true religion. They're all the same or they're all partial. Okay, class. Are there any, is there anything wrong with those illustrations? You might say, well, I've always thought that one or both of them made a lot of sense to me. Well, let me, let me show you how they don't make sense. The only way you could possibly know that these contradictory religions down here are all going to the top of the mountain is if you are at the top of the mountain. You're the, that's the only way you would know. Or the only way you could know that every religion only sees part of the elephant or only grasps part of the elephant is if you're the king and you're not blind. So the only way you could know that every religion only as part of the truth is if you believe you have a superior take on spiritual reality to all the religions that have ever been. Leslie Newbigin, who was a, uh, a, uh, a British missionary to India over the years, talks about those illustrations. And at one point he says, there is an appearance of humility in the protest that the truth is so much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth... It is, in fact, an arrogant claim to the kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. And we have to ask, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims of these different religions and different scriptures? Do you see what he's saying? He was saying, when you... Well, let me, let me drive it home as, as much as I can. To say no one's take on spiritual reality is superior to anyone else's take on spiritual reality is to say your take on spiritual reality is superior to everybody else's. To say no universal truth claims are true is a universal truth claim. To say you must not evangelize, you must not try to get people to adopt your view of religion rather than theirs, but when you do that, you're evangelizing. You're trying to get the person to stop doing what they're doing and adopt your approach to religion. Or... If you say it's narrow to claim that one religion is right, why isn't it narrow for you to claim that one way to think about religion is right, your way? Everybody's exclusive. To say anything about religion, to say anything about God, is essentially to say, I have a view of spiritual reality which I think is better than somebody else's. And therefore, there's nobody who's inclusive versus exclusive. Everybody's exclusive. Everybody's making exclusive truth claims. Got it? To say that no truth claims are true. Let me push it a little further. And by the way, this is not a political statement. Uh, seven or eight years ago, Bill Clinton gave a lecture at Georgetown University. And uh, I'm not picking on Bill Clinton. And this is not a political statement. But he made a, a, a simple statement that I thought was so, it so typified the average American's view of things that I had to use it as a quote. He said, quote, they think, I don't know who he was talking about here, but they think they have the truth. But we don't think you can know the truth. 
We think every individual counts and that life is a pilgrimage. Hear that? We don't believe you can know the truth. We think that every individual counts and that life is a pilgrimage. Now, that is extremely typical. He says, oh, I don't think anyone can know the truth. All we believe is that every individual has dignity, every individual is important, and every individual has the right to decide what is true or false or right or wrong for him or her. That's what he said. Does that sound open-minded to you? Do you know what that is? That is a very white, Western, post-enlightenment, individualistic take on truth. It comes out of Europe. It's a radically individualistic understanding of things that says all that matters is individual people and individual, the individual consciousness is the highest arbiter of truth. It developed in the 18th and 19th century. It came from France. It came from uh, Britain. It came from the philosophers. But most cultures and most people in most places in time do not believe that's how truth works. And so to say no one has the truth, every individual has to decide what is right or wrong for him or her, is an incredibly narrow, particular, uh, white Western view of truth that you're imposing on the whole world by saying, well, everybody should adopt our view. Why? Don't you see? That's a leap of faith. You've adopted a particular... It feels good to you, right? Maybe experiential. Maybe you had friends at college that said it. I don't know where you got it. But for you to say, oh, you know, you shouldn't say you have a truth. That's very exclusive. I'm open-minded. I believe everybody has to decide what is right or wrong for him or her. Sounds open-minded, but it is a particular approach to truth. It has philosophical roots. It has white Western roots. And you're being every bit as exclusive in your truth claims when you say nobody should be exclusive in their truth claims. And therefore, you're making a great leap of faith. Oh, somebody says, this is bad news. This is bad news. Why? Well, because we live in a world in which people are upset with each other and there's violence. There's violence out there and they're hurting each other. And as soon as you say, I have the truth, that's just going to lead to more violence. Well, I've just tried to show you that it's impossible to avoid saying I have the truth. It is impossible. So what are we going to do about it? I was in New York City right at 9-11, and I remember my wife and I listening to the news and reading the paper and listening to broadcasts. It was an amazing time. But one of the things that we kept hearing were people in interviews saying, one of the things that 9-11 shows us is that religious fundamentalism leads to violence. That strong, devout, religious belief, religious fundamentalism leads to violence. I never forgot Kathy, who says, oh, I don't think that's true. And I said, really, why? She says, well, it depends on what your fundamental is. And then she says, have you ever seen an Amish terrorist? (laughs) Now, what's she saying? By any definition, Amish are fundamentalists. I'm sorry. Would you call that devout religious belief? Yes, I would say so. But what is their fundamental? A man dying on the cross for his enemies. A man saying, Father, forgive them. The people killing him, they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) If you take, if that's your fundamental, is that going to lead to violence? No. And here's my point. The question should not be, do you have the truth? Because everybody thinks they have the truth. The real question is, which set of exclusive truth claims, and we all have them, Which set of exclusive truth claims will lead to a humble, peaceful, non-superior attitude toward the people with whom you deeply differ? Did you hear that? Don't say what's going to bring peace in this world is people who don't have any truth claims. It's impossible. I tried to show you. There's there's 
you know, without admitting it, everybody actually has truth claims. What you want is a view of truth, a set of beliefs that leads you to humbly not look down on the people who differ with you. And I have to say, at that point, Christianity has an enormous amount to, uh, to give because as a resource, if that's the heart of your, your whole life, if your whole meaning in life, your whole life is based on a man dying on the cross for his enemies, that's an exclusive truth, but it's a truth that's going to lead to peace. So do you see that not only does this argument not disprove that there's a God, not disprove that there's truth, but there is a, a lot of faith in there, and it's a blind leap of faith in the white Western individualistic view of truth, and you won't even admit what it is. That's a problem. Let me give you the other main argument against God and Christianity today, and that is evil and suffering. The argument goes like this. There can't be a good and all-powerful God because look at all this world filled with senseless evil and suffering. If there was a completely good and completely powerful God the way the Bible says there is, then that God would never allow all this senseless evil and suffering to go on. Therefore, there can't be a God. Let's examine that. First of all, I noticed you said senseless. You know, not all suffering is senseless. So, for example, you see a little kid in front of a bus, and the bus is coming along. So you, you run out in front of the, of the bus. You push the child aside. You almost get out of the way of the bus, but the bus hits you. You glance off the bus. You're thrown five feet. Uh, you end up in a hospital, and you have broken bones and all that. But after weeks, and you suffer. It hurts. It's hard. But then after a number of weeks, you get out and and you, you know, you're on the mend, but maybe you work, walk with a limp the rest of your life. That's suffering. Would you call it senseless suffering? No, it's meaningful suffering. Why? Because it had a higher purpose. There was some great, great good. You know, it was you getting a limp or a child losing a life. So you wouldn't call it senseless suffering. Ah, you say, I know, but the point is, look at all the senseless suffering out here in the world. Ah, well, no, wait. Christianity has always taught that God someday will end suffering at the end of time. He'll put everything right. In the meantime, he has not stopped the suffering. He lets the evil and suffering of this world continue. But how do you know that there's no good reason for him to do that? Maybe there are good reasons why he hasn't stopped it. He's not going to stop it for till next year. He's not going to stop it for another 100 years. He's not going to stop it for 1,000 years. I don't know. But uh, Christianity says... God allows it to, to, to go on, but he's got good reasons. We don't know what they are, but he's got good reasons. You say, well, that makes no sense to me. Well, I want you to know something. In the last 20 years, philosophers, academic leading world philosophers, have stopped trying to disprove God from the, from the, uh, on the basis of evil. In the middle of the 20th century, there was something called the atheological argument against the existence of God from evil. That is, a number of philosophers tried to say, because of evil and suffering in the world, senseless evil and suffering in the world, there can't be a God. And now William Alston, who's a retired philosopher at Syracuse, is a major guy, uh, recently wrote, the, 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 effort, the philosophical effort to demonstrate that evil disproves God is now acknowledged on almost all sides to be completely bankrupt. So he says there's really no reputable uh, philosopher out there trying to disprove God on the basis of evil. A lot of people at the street level are still trying to do it, but the philosophers know better. Why? Because they realized that when you argue that God couldn't exist because he wouldn't allow senseless evil and suffering, 
there is a hidden premise. It's a hidden faith assumption. And what is the premise? What you're saying is because you can't think of any good reason why God would allow suffering to continue, therefore there can't be any. Right? See, when I talk to people, and I've often talked to people about this, they say, God, God just allowing this to go on, and there's no good reason he has to allow it to go on. I said, what makes you think there's no good reasons? And generally it comes down to saying, because I can't think of any. But just because you can't think of any good reasons doesn't mean that God couldn't have them, because he's God. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at, because he doesn't stop suffering and evil, you at the same moment have a God big and transcendent enough to have some reasons for letting it to go on that you can't think of. And that's the reason why philosophers have given up saying that you can disprove God from evil because unless you can prove that uh, God couldn't have any good reason for allowing evil and suffering to continue, you can't disprove God, and nobody can prove that. And not only that, there's, a certain, there's, a, there's, a, there's an assumption in there. Do you see that? Now, forgive me for having just done what I did because there's two reasons why people object to God on the basis of evil and suffering. One is people do it philosophically. It's the sort of thing that you, you find when you go to a college campus and you ask people, why do you disbelieve? And they say, because of evil and suffering. And that's what I say. I just gave you. It's kind of a philosophical jujitsu move. And the philosophers say, oh, yeah, Alvin Plantinga, philosopher at Notre Dame, tells a story about this. He says, if I told you, here's a pup tent, which is a small tent, and I told you... Um, I think there might be St. Bernard's in there, but I don't know. If you walk in there and you come out and say, I didn't see any St. Bernard's, almost certainly, if you didn't see any St. Bernard's in the pop tent, there probably weren't any. St. Bernard's are big. They're very visible to the naked eye. <laughs> but what if, Alpin Planting says, what if I say, go into that pup tent because I think there are some noceums in there. Now, if you, if you, if you, have, gone, if you have ever um, vacationed around the Great Lakes... You know what an OCM is. It's a tiny little gnat that you can't keep out, even with screens, because it comes through the screen. And it bites you, uh, and they're virtually invisible. So if you go in there, and you look around, you don't see any, you come out and say, there's no CMs in there. Well, the response would be, there may be, but there may not be. Why? Because they may be in there, but if they are in there, you wouldn't be able to see them, because you, you can't see them. So the point is, a St. Bernard, would you expect to be visible to the eye. A noceum, you don't expect to be visible to the eye. When a person says, I can't believe in God because if there was a good reason, I would think about it, what makes you think that if there were good reasons for God to allow evil and suffering to go on, they'd be more like St. Bernard's than like noceums, philosophically speaking? <laughs> what makes you think that they'd be visible to the human mind? If you have a God big and transcendent enough to be angry at for not stopping suffering, then at the same moment, you've got a God big and transcendent enough to have reasons for allowing it to go on that you can't, you don't know, you can't think of. That's the philosophical. What if you've had a personal problem? What if you had really bad suffering in your life? And I'm sure in a place this size, there's got to be people like that. Horrible tragedy, terrible stuff has happened to you. And you say, I just can't believe in a God who would allow the stuff that he's allowed. Well, here's my suggestion. First of all, let me ask you, all right, so let's stop believing in God. Now how are you doing on your suffering? What resources have you got to face your pain? 
If you say, well, there is no God. This life just happened. This world just happened by accident. Now guess what? Now you don't even have a basis for complaining. Because if this world just happened and it's just the product of, of time and chance, then the world, there's nothing wrong with the world. It's just the way it is. Now you don't even have the right to cry out and shake your fist and say, this is wrong. Why is it wrong? This is just the way things are. What is is right. That's what the Marquis de Sade said. Because if there is no God, this world is just the way it is. But if you, if you turn to Christianity, here's what you got. Only Christianity, only Christianity of all the faiths in the whole world, of all the world, says that God actually got involved with our suffering. No other religion has the audacity to say God came into this world and became vulnerable and subject to suffering. He plunged himself into the fiery furnace of human life. Some people say, look at this awful world. If God was really there, it would break his heart. And the Christians point to the cross and say, it did break his heart. What you've got when you turn to the cross is this. When you see God, having become Jesus Christ, coming into our world in order to someday, in some mysterious way, deal with evil and suffering so someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us on Judgment Day. He came down into the world and he died on the cross to deal with evil, to, to forgive our sin, so someday he can end all evil and suffering without ending us. And if it's really true that God came into the world and plunged himself into our suffering and was tortured, and was betrayed, and was rejected, and was hungry, and was thirsty, and was abandoned, and was, and was killed. Now, when I look at the cross, I still don't know what the reason for suffering is. I still don't know why he's allowing it. I still don't know what the reason for suffering is. But now I know what the reason for suffering isn't. It can't be. It isn't that he doesn't love us. Or he wouldn't have done that. So I still got a mystery. But I got a resource. You turn away from God, you've got no resource because your suffering is absolutely meaningless because there's no reason to even say there's something wrong with the world. You turn toward Christianity, you've got a resource. Do you not see that the arguments against the existence of God not only don't work, but they're based on all sorts of faith leaps? Now, if you see that, that then we turn to the second stage. Um, once you realize you can't disprove God, you know what you... What, this, now you're into Pascal's wager territory. Do you, know, you know what Pascal's wager is? Blaise Pascal, the great French philosopher. Blaise Pascal basically said this, since you can't prove that there is no God, that means that there might be a God. And since there might be a God, if you live as if there is not, that is an act of faith. And you are betting your life that there is no God. See, if, if you could prove there's no God, then, of course, to live as if there's no God wouldn't be an act of faith. But if you can't prove there is no God, and I just try to show you you can't, then there might be a God, which means living without God is an act of faith. And you, in a sense, are putting yourself uh, in the... You are basing your life on your beliefs every bit as much as Christians are when they believe in God. When I get that across to people, and I've seen a lot of people have that dawn on them, I've had a lot of people say, well, I'm kind of skeptical and I don't see there's enough proof for God. And I say, well, you can't have, you can't have proof. You can't look for proof for anything. Well, 
I, you know, I, I think there's some good reasons why there really isn't a God, and we go through them. And after a while, if I can get to a person to the place where they say, oh, okay, I guess then that, there, that you can't disprove God either. So I can't prove there is a God. I can't prove there isn't a God. I said, now you realize you're living your life on the basis of faith. You're betting your life that there is no God because if there is a God and you're living as if there's not a God, that's bad. <laughs> and by the way, if you, and this is Pascal's wager, if there isn't a God and you're living as if there is a God, that's bad too, but not as bad. What it means is once you realize you can't disprove the existence of God, you better get really serious about looking at the evidence for Christianity. You really better. And that moves us to our second stage. The second stage goes like this. There's three things. Let me just, there's more than three, but there's three things. Uh, I said the second stage is when you begin to see the problems you have without it. And here's what I mean by that. Science doesn't really prove things. A scientific theory, the reigning scientific theories are the theories that best explain the data. And the reigning scientific theories are theories that are put in place because they best explain the data. So here's theory A and here's theory B. Here's the data. And if theory A leads you to expect what we see and theory B does not, we adopt theory A as more reasonable, more rational. Does it prove theory A? No. It's the, but it's the most reasonable. That's what I want to do with you on three, th three, in three areas. Number one, let's notice the fine-tuning of the universe. What do we mean by the fine-tuning of the universe? Well, one way to put it is this. The fundamental regularities and constants of physics, the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the strength of the weak and strong nuclear forces, all of those things have to be exactly what they are for organic life to happen. Uh, somebody put it, for organic life to exist, it's almost as if 100 dials all have to be turned to exactly the same spot or organic life wouldn't happen. Are you hearing me and following me? Unless everything happened exactly the way it happened, there wouldn't be life. So what are the chances that everything happened just the way they happened? And the answer is one in a trillion chance. Uh, so if, if, if there was an explosion in a, in a printing company's... Uh, let's say it was an explosion at a printing company. What are the chances that the ink the paper would all go up in the air and all come down just in such a way that you'd have Shakespeare's complete works. Is there a chance? Yes, I mean, technically, sure there's a chance. But if you actually find Shakespeare's complete works in the, in the aftermath of the explosion, you would assume it was, uh, it was an intelligent um, intervention on the part of a person that it didn't just happen by accident. Now, therefore, you have a universe which is... Uh, uh, fine-tuned for organic life. Do you think that happened by accident? No. And so there's uh, evidence that there's a God. Well, now, if you read all the New Atheist books, all of them take that, that argument on. You know what that means? It means it's got power. There's no way that Dawkins, Hitchens, they would no way that they would take that argument on if it didn't have power. And it does. Because, you know, when, when something happens that's a one in a trillion chance, you don't assume that the one in a trillion chance happened. You assume that somebody intervened. You know what Dawkins says in his great book, The God Delusion? Tongue-in-cheek, great. He says, well, he, probably here's the answer. At the Big Bang, there were billions of different universes that all are parallel. This is also great for science fiction. And no, but there's no evidence for this, but maybe, okay. So he says there are billions of universes. We just happen to find ourselves in the one that's calibrated for organic life. 
And Alvin Plantinga tells a very interesting story. He says, imagine that you're in Texas in the 1880s. And you've all got your six shooters on the table, and you're all playing a game of poker. Okay? And one man deals himself 20 straight hands of four aces. 20 straight hands. And so when they get to the 20th hand, everybody starts to get out their six shooter. And he says, wait, wait, guys. And then this is what he says. I know it looks suspicious, but what if there is an infinite succession of universes? So that for any possible distribution of possible poker hands, there is one universe in which this possibility is always realized. We just happen to find ourselves in the one where I always deal myself four aces without cheating. Why couldn't that be the case? This doesn't have to be cheating. This just happens to be the universe in which that always happens. How will you respond, everybody? You're going to shoot him. And the reason you're going to shoot him is you're going to say, of course, we can't prove that you have cheated, but we know you have. And here's the point. Now, listen. When somebody... uh, Essentially, what Dawkins is saying, and and when you get to this place, here's what Dawkins is saying. Dawkins is saying, though there's no God, the regularity of the universe and organic life just happened. Which means that though the Christian worldview does lead us to expect what we see, if there is a God, of course that would happen that way. And the non-theistic, if belief in God does not lead us to expect it, uh, I'm, still, I'm simply going to say that one in a trillion chance operated. I mean, even though there's a lot of evidence that God happened, it, you can't prove, you're not proving God. It could be a one in a trillion chance. You don't live that way in any other area of your life, do you? You don't play poker that way, we know, because you, you shot the guy. You don't, there's no other area of your life in which you would ever, ever, ever assume that that happened by accident. You would assume that there was a personal inter- intervention somehow. Uh, why would you do it here? Why would you bet your whole life on the idea that there's a one in a trillion chance that there is no God? Here's another uh, interesting problem you have. In other words, the fine-tuning of the universe, the theory that there's a God leads you to expect what you see, the fine-tuning of the universe. The theory that there is no God leads you to expect that that would never have happened. So if your premise that there is no God leads you to expect something that really didn't happen, why not change the premise? Let me talk to you about morality for a minute and human rights. Do you believe that human beings are important? Do you believe that, uh, that, that human rights are important? Do you believe that it's, uh, human beings have dignity and you shouldn't trample on people? What if there is no God? Uh, Annie Dillard won a Pulitzer Prize for her book years ago called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard, um, it was based on the fact that Annie uh, was a writer, I think at Salem College in Roanoke, Virginia, and she went out into the, the hills, into the mountains, and sat beside a creek bed and sought to get close to nature. And after a while, she, you know, she thought that if I got close to nature, I would humanize myself that the more I get close to nature, the more I will be a, a, you know, a loving and caring person who cares about life and so on. And that's not what happened. Here's what she said. She watched what happened. She saw nature red in tooth and claw. She saw animals and insects and things you know, killing each other. Um, listen, she says, evolution loves death more than it loves you or me. I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow. 
but I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. I must part ways with the only world I know. Look, Cock Robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creeks rolls on, uh, the survivors still sing, but I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, nor either of us about the robins. We value the individual supremely, and nature values him not a whit. It looks like I might have to reject this creek life unless I want myself to be utterly brutalized. If I really, in other words, she was saying, if I really live the way nature lives, I won't be human anymore. And here's what she says. She says, either this world, my mother, is a monster, or I am a freak. That's good reasoning. And here's, she says, let's go through those two alternatives. Either this world is a monster, or I'm a freak. Let's consider the former. The world is a monster. There's not a person in the world that behaves as badly as a praying mantis. But, wait, you say, there's no right or wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely, we are moral creatures in a universe that is running on chance and death, careening blindly from nowhere to nowhere, which somehow produced wonderful us. This world runs on chance and death and power, but I cherish life and the rights of the weak versus the strong. So I crawled by chance out of a sea of amino acids... And now I whirl around and shake my fist at that sea and cry, shame? We little blobs of soft tissue crawling around on this one planet's skin are right and the whole universe is wrong? Okay, the world is a monster. Hmm. Well, let's try the alternative. Maybe nature is fine. Maybe nature is perfectly normal. Our feelings are freakishly amiss. The frog that the giant water bug sucked, she she saw a giant water bug attack a, a frog um, paralyze it with a sting and then put its sting down into, the, into its brain and just suck it up until there was just a little bit of skin left and it, was, it collapsed like a, you know, a suit of clothes. And she never was able to overcome, get over that. <laughs> she says, the frog that the giant water bug sucked had a rush of feeling for about a second before its brain was turned to broth. I, however, have been sapped by various strong feelings about the incident for years. All right, then. It's our emotions and our values that are amiss. Nature is fine. We are freaks. So let us all go have frontal lobotomies (laughs) to restore us to our natural state. Then we can leave the library and go back to the creek lobotomized and live on its bank as untroubled as any muskrat or reed. You first. (laughs) That's brilliant writing. It's what got her a Pulitzer Prize, and you might want to pick up the book. But you know what she's saying, and here's what she's saying. If there is no God, there's no supernatural. All you have is nature. You have the here and the now. You have what, you know, you have the empirical. And nature is red in tooth and claw. Nature is all about the strong eating the weak. That's how you got here. If there's no God, you got here just by the strong eating the weak. And yet now we human beings feel like strong tribes should not, you know, uh, eat the weak tribes. And strong people should not trample on the weak people, though that's wrong. And she says, wait a minute. How could nature be unnatural? How could there be anything wrong with nature if that's all there is? And she says, if there is no God, then there is nothing wrong with the strong eating the weak. Nothing wrong with it at all. That's just the way things are. But if it's wrong, then there must be a supernatural, got it, standard by which I'm judging that nature is wrong. The only way you can judge there's something wrong with nature is if there's a supernatural standard. And if there's no God, there is no supernatural standard. And if there is a God, there is. And so you know what you're doing? 
My premise that there is no God leads me to the conclusion that morality is all relative and there's no real difference between right and wrong and it's all in my opinion, it's all in my head. And yet you know that's not true. You know that's not true. So if your premise that there is no God leads you to a conclusion that you know isn't true, why not change the premise? What you're actually saying is, I don't believe in God. You're saying, well, if there was a God, then what I believe about morality makes sense. And if, if there is no God, what I believe about morality makes no sense. But I'm not going to believe in God anyway. What we're doing here is getting you to, the, to this spot. And we're, we're at the end of stage two. I'm trying to get you to the place where you realize, not that Christianity is true, but it's extremely reasonable. Not that that belief in the God of the Bible is proven, but that it is extremely reasonable. In fact, it's more reasonable than the, the alternatives. Now, when you get to that place, you're on the verge of three, and here's what I want to do, and it have to be a little more brief, um, but here's where we, we, we're going over from the, from the rational into the personal. First of all, I want you to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Almost nobody finds faith without getting there. Most people think that the belief that a man got up from the grave, that teaching, um, is so crazy and so outrageous that if I'm going to believe it, I've had people say, uh, well, the, uh, the, the burden is on the, the Christian believer to show me that that happened. Not completely. Uh, the burden is on you to come up with an alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church. Here's what we know about how the church started. The early eyewitness accounts, 1 Corinthians 15, every historian in the world, Christian or non-Christian, believes that the letters of Paul were written within 15 years or so after the death of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that after the death of Christ, Jesus appeared to all sorts of people. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to many, many people. And at one point, he appeared to 500 people at once. Now, you could not, in a public document, 1 Corinthians 15 was a public letter, you couldn't say that 15 years after the fact when most of the people who had seen Jesus were still alive. In fact, Paul says so. He says, he says most of the people that Jesus appeared to in that crowd of 500 are still alive. If you want to believe it, if you don't believe it, go ask them. He actually says that. And therefore, it re these, these sightings really happen. They really happen, number one. Number two, the Jews were the last people on the face of the earth to believe that a human being could be the son of God. You know that. Orthodox Jews, even today, won't even write the name of God. They'll put G-D. They are the last people on the face of the earth. All kinds of religions believe, oh, yes, God is in people, and some people have a lot of God in The Jews did not believe that. They believed there was God, and then there were human beings, and they were the last people on the face of the earth to believe that a human being could be God. And we know within a few years after the death of Jesus Christ, that there were hundreds and thousands of Jews who'd become Christians and they were worshiping Jesus as God. We've got the hymns. In the middle of Philippians 2, there is a hymn preserved that Paul quotes in which Jesus is being praised as God. What in the world would have created that kind of revolution? You know, worldviews change. I mean, people change. Faiths change over a long period of time, but not in five or ten years. To have thousands of Jews who were taught there's no way in the world that a human being could possibly be God. Worshiping a man? Why? Because they said they saw him alive. And then they spent the next, you know, several decades dying for their faith. You come up with an alternate explanation for that. Because that's how the Christian church started. It just exploded. And it exploded with people who said Jesus is the son of God. These are people who have been trained all their life to say, you know, no human being could be a son of God. And they said they saw him. 
you come up with a better alternate explanation. And you could read N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, high-level scholarly work, 890 pages. I read it when I had thyroid cancer. It was a tonic. And in it, he says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is as well as tested as any historical event in, the history, in history. Therefore, what do, you, do you see the problem you have without Christianity? You've got to come to grips with the resurrection and then the beauty you see within it. What is the gospel? Let me just suggest three things. Sin, grace, and glory. Let me give you some stories. Because if you understand the gospel properly, I guess if it's communicated to you, you're going to find that, it, that it's beautiful. That is, it fits the aspirations and the intuitions and the experiences of your heart. Um, most people, let me give you, let's start with sin. Most people have a sense that there's, most people have a sense that there's something, some barrier between them and God. Let me, let me show you why I think that can be explained. Imagine um, a woman, an old woman, who is a, a mother of a single child, one child. And this woman is very good to her child, and this woman works very hard to support her child. And this woman teaches her child to be a good person, teaches the child, you need to uh, tell the truth, keep your promises, work hard, care for the poor, okay? I want you to be a moral person. And she works in slaves, and she saves her pennies and sends this child to save the boy off to school, off to college, puts him through college. And after college, he never calls his mother, he never sees his mother, he never speaks to his mother again. But he lives a very good life. He does everything she ever told him about. He tells the truth. He keeps his promises. He, uh, you know, he cares for the poor. He does all that. And she so says, well, I'm a good person. I'm doing everything that my mother ever told me I should do. But he doesn't speak to her. He doesn't call her. doesn't acknowledge her. When she did everything for him, when she, she gave him everything he is, is, is because of her sacrifice. Would you say that's acceptable? Would you say that's awful? Would you say that's culpable? That's where every human being is. Because even the best people, I've got all kinds of people who say, well, I don't believe in God, and I, or, I, or I, 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 I'm not very religious, or I guess I do believe in God, but I'm a good person. You're like, the, if there is a God, he created you, and he's keeping you alive every minute, and you owe him everything. And you say, well, I'm being a good person. I'm doing the things he says in the Ten Commandments, but you're not acknowledging him. That's culpable. You're not living for him. You're, that's culpable. Do you see why there's a problem? Do you see why there's a guilt? Do you say, well, there's a condemnation? And don't you see that that actually comports with, with the vague sense that there's something wrong between me and God? Most people's relationship with God is very fraught. Okay, secondly, what did God do about it? That's sin. Here's grace. C.S. Lewis said, uh, you know, when he saw the, uh, uh, the first, who was the first cosmonaut? Yuri Gagarin, 1961. I'm showing my age. He was a Russian that went and, and was the first person at least the first person that the Soviet Union told us about who survived there uh, <laughs> orbited the earth, manned orbit. And when he came back, he said, I know that there is no God because I went up into heaven and I didn't see him. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis actually wrote a little article about that in which he said, uh, that's silly. He says, because God wouldn't, if God created the world, then, we, then God does not relate to us the way a person on the first story relates to the person on the second story. He says, God would relate to us the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. 
See, Shakespeare created Hamlet, and if Hamlet's going to know anything about Shakespeare, it will only happen if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. In other words, Shakespeare can tell Hamlet in the play something about himself, and then Hamlet will know it. Otherwise, Hamlet couldn't possibly find Shakespeare by going up in the rafters. Got it? Do you know that that's what Jesus Christ did? Only he went, he did something better. Um, Dorothy Sayers was a mystery novelist. She wrote the Peter Whimsey, the Lord Peter Whimsey novels about this aristocratic detective. And uh, Dorothy Sayers, by the way, was one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford, and she was a writer of detective fiction. And she wrote these uh, novels and these stories, and they were very popular. And at one point, suddenly, a woman shows up in the novels. You know, it's, these are novels about this, this character and, and uh, telling the story of his life. Suddenly, a woman named Harriet Vane shows up in the novels. She's one of the first women who ever graduated from Oxford. She's a writer of detective fiction. Uh, she and Peter Wimsey fall in love, and he, she helps him and kind of saves him because he was a kind of a lonely old person and... and uh, and so they, have, they live happily ever after. Who do you think Harriet Vane was? The author, Dorothy Sayers, and this is, you know, she's gone, but many, many uh, biographers have see, seen this. Dorothy Sayers created a, a world and created a character and fell in love with him and saw that he needed someone, so she wrote herself in. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He, God wrote himself into the world. Jesus Christ came into this world to save us. And how did he save us? If we are guilty because of the way in which we live, somebody's got to pay the price. There needs to be uh, justice done. At the end of A Tale of Two Cities, we're told about uh, these two, couple, two people. Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay are almost identical. They look very much alike. They both love the same girl, Lucy. Uh, Lucy marries Charles Darnay. They have a child. But Charles Darnay, because this happens during the French Revolution, is captured and taken to the Bastille, and he's about to be executed the next day. Sidney Carton and his friends steal into the dungeon, knock Charles Darnay out, put him in a bag. Sidney Carton puts on Charles Darnay's clothes. The friends take Charles Darnay away and reunite him with Lucy and the child, and they go to England, and they're, they're free. And Sidney Carton poses Charles Darnay. And the next morning, uh, the day of the execution, there's a bunch of people in the dungeon. They're all about to be guillotined. And there's a little girl, a seamstress, a young girl, who goes up to Charles Darnay, thinking it's Charles Darnay, starts to talk to him, and suddenly realizes it's not Charles Darnay, and her eyes get really big. She realizes it's somebody standing in for him. And she looks at him and she says, are you dying for him? And Sidney Carton says, yes, for him and his wife and child. And essentially what she says, this is a paraphrase, she looks at him and she says, oh, brave stranger, I don't know that I have the courage to face what's about to happen, but you are so brave and you are so good that if you would hold my hand, I think I could face it. And he said, okay. She was empowered by the substitutionary sacrifice that she saw in that man. That man was giving his life. She was empowered by the substitutionary sacrifice, and it wasn't even for her. 
What if you really believe that Jesus Christ did that for you? What if you really believe that he took away your guilt like that? Does that not resonate with your heart? Isn't there something in you that says, that's too good to be true? Fine, that's a personal reason to believe it. It fits you. And here's one last thing. J.R.R. Tolkien said the reason why so many people love, so many people absolutely adore and love fantasy stories. They love science fiction. They love, they love Lord of the Rings. Why? Because he says, deep down, all human beings desire certain things. And those certain things, he actually makes a list of them at one point. He says, the deep thing, they desire to survey the depths of time and space and escape death. They desire to hold personal communion with other living things like trees or animals or especially other personal beings like angels. They desire to live long enough to achieve their artistic and creative dreams. They, they, they long to find a love that so perfectly heals and f- fulfills them and then never, ever leaves. They want triumph over evil. We want love that never parts from us. We want to escape death. We want, uh, we want a triumph over evil. And we, you know what fantasy films do? Fantasy stories where, uh, you know, there, there's magic and all that. That's what you get. And even though it seems so unrealistic, Tolkien actually says in his famous, his famous essay on fairy t- stories, that human beings so desperately want that that we keep on buying them and we keep on uh, paying admission to go see them. And very often the, uh, the glitterati, alliterati, you know, the, 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 the cultural elites hate the fantasy stuff. They say, come on, let's be realistic. But people want it because it's a deep longing. Why do we have that deep longing? Uh, Tolkien himself, you know, was a, was a believer. And Tolkien said, because we're made in the image of God, because we were created in the Garden of Eden, because we were created never to die, because we were created to have converse with the angels, because we were created to, you know, to have love that never parts. Deep down inside, we know we were made for all those things. And the only way we can keep going is to, is to, is to go see these fairy tales that, you know, in which those things are true. And it, it consoles us briefly. But if you believe the gospel, if you believe what Christianity says, it is true. It is absolutely true. You were meant for those things. And in Jesus Christ, you're going to get those things. What could be better than that? Uh, Vinath Ramachandra, who is a, uh, a Sri Lankan Christian, says very often people say to him, um, surely there is salvation in other faiths. And Vinath Ramachandra says, Christian salvation lies not in escape into heaven, but the transformation of this world. God is going to give us a new heavens, a new earth, and he's going to make everything right. Everything sad is going to come untrue. You're going, to get, you're going to get everything you've ever wanted. And so Venus Ramachandra says, when someone says, surely there's salvation in other faiths, he always says, what salvation are you talking about? Not this salvation. No faith, no religion holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world, like the cross and the resurrection. Those are the reasons. Did I say there was a fourth step? I don't really have time for it, but I'll tell you what the fourth step is. If you come into Christian community, you're going to see one thing, and that is that Christianity is the only truly universal religion. The demographic heart of Buddhism is still in Japan. The demographic heart of Islam is still in the Middle East. The demographic heart of Hinduism is still the, uh, is still the Indian subcontinent. 
In other words, where those faiths started is still the main place where most of the adherents of those faiths live because they are very, very culturally rooted. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is growing faster in Asia and South America and, Latin, and, and Africa than it is in Western Europe and, and, uh, and North America. It is truly a universal faith. It's a faith that actually, uh, it doesn't, it's not a type of person that becomes a Christian. It's not a type of culture that is Christian because it comes from God. And when you get into the Christian community, you will see it is the only truly universal human community that there is. All that brings you to the place of saying, maybe I should commit myself to this. I, some of you may recognize, I decided in order to touch on the whole journey, I took a little longer, so we don't have quite as much time for questions, but I'm going to ask Tom uh, Nelson to come on up here and see whether we can see, take a few of your questions until we're done. Yeah, that's fine. We clap around here, so that's okay. No, no, okay. That, yeah, yeah. That's all right. I, I, I appreciate it. I do appreciate it. Can you see through that okay? Is that okay, the podium? Me see through? To what? To the crew. We're good. Can you move it? Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Well, Tim, you've given us a lot to think about. Probably too uh, much. That was great. And uh, I know there are lots I, of questions. So I made an executive decision. We have, we have one right up here, first of all. We'll go right to, okay. how can I want to go to heaven if many of my friends and loved ones have died without knowing Christ as their Savior and are going to hell? There's a lot in that one. Well, I think the, the best thing for you to keep in mind, every, those, whoever asked the question, is, um, by the way, I, you can only know about your own salvation. You really can't be sure of anybody else's. Uh, the Bible holds out that with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can have assurance of salvation. That is, you can know that you belong to Jesus. You can know that he's with you. You can have that assurance. But honestly, you can't... In, in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, uh, there's a, the Jesus figure is Aslan. And um, there's a couple of places where C.S. Lewis has people come up to Aslan and say, well, what about him? What about her? And Aslan says, I never tell you anybody else's story. I only tell you your own. And actually, you can see that at the end of the book of John where uh, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die for your faith. And then, uh, remember, it's, and another disciple is walking alongside and Peter. It's almost, it's almost comic. Peter says, what about him, Lord? It, it's, it's almost like a comic, comic yeah. relief. And Jesus says, what is that to you? Follow me. So I, I, all you know is that when you get to uh, glory, there's, you're not going to have any regrets. That's all you can know. And meanwhile, you just can't be sure. Great. Okay. We have another question up there that we've uh, texted in. Otherwise, I'll have a question. You said Christians should respect other people's beliefs. Should we respect other people's beliefs or the person? Whichever your answer, how does that play out yeah. in normal life? That's a good question. Both. Both. When I say you can respect, I mean, there's no doubt that some people's beliefs are clearly not well thought out. And you can talk to them and you can see that they just picked up their beliefs here and there without spending a lot of time. And other, other folks you can tell really have thought through their beliefs. So I'm not saying that there isn't, that some people's beliefs aren't in some ways a little easier to respect and admire and other people's not. 
But I would say um, all human beings, here's a Christian point of view. I don't know, you know, from a Christian point of view, all human beings are made in the image of God. That is, God made them, and, and they, they have rationality, and they have certain moral intuitions. This is a, a biblical teaching. Whether they're Christians or members of other faiths or no, or, or atheists, they have moral intuitions that come from God, and therefore they're going to know a lot of, of wise things. Uh, Christian theologians call that common grace. And, and therefore, um, I know that anybody I talk to will... Uh, there, will, there will be ways in which that person is attuned with, with truth. So very seldom have I met anybody that uh, had beliefs that I couldn't respect in any way. I usually look for the things about their beliefs that I can respect and, you know, I hopefully charitably turn away from the areas that, you know, I think that that's not very well thought out. So you, you respect both the person and their beliefs. I, I don't mean to say you, that some beliefs aren't b- better thought out than others. One thing I really love what you said, Tim, was the sense that our faith, the Christian faith, allows us to love others who are different than us, just oh. the very nature of it. And I think that is really important to remember. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, even if the people weren't just people that didn't believe what you believe, but they were enemies, Jesus', Jesus uh, pattern is loving your enemies. So even if they're your enemies, you should show them respect, yeah. You also said that you know, your certainty of faith has been a sort of a cumulative dynamic. Yeah. Can you share just a minute in your own life? You didn't share much about your own life, just how sort of you've come to where you are today. Well, in the in the I in I think I actually mentioned it in I wrote a book called Reason for God, which essentially traces, as yeah. Tom probably knows, I just gave you a fifty-five minute uh, tour through the whole book, so you really don't need to buy it's it. It's a very good book. I want you to read it, but. <laughs> Your story, no, you the really threads of your story are If you are just took good notes, frankly, it's cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kindle's pretty good. No, it's, weirdly enough, it's oh, more expensive right. on the Kindle. I don't understand it. I don't understand Ooh. that, but that's, that's not what you're asking, is it? Yes. No. Uh, in The Reason for God, I tried to say that when I was in college, uh, I came to faith in Christ because of all three of those things. I, I had the, uh, the rational, the personal, and the social. Uh, I found uh, a group of people who... To my surprise, they were Christians, and I really respected them, even though I wasn't a Christian. Uh, I saw some personal th- problems I had in my own life that Christianity fit, but that wasn't good enough. I couldn't do it just because I liked these people and because I needed it. I had to be sure it was true, and so I spent a lot of time working through the objections. Um, I also alluded to one other thing, and that is when I was 51, I, got th- I had cancer, and uh, it was removed, and I'm okay. But there's nothing like the cancer word to, uh, and it was a, you know, it was a, uh, you know, malignancy to really uh, focus the mind. <laughs> and during the three months, I actually mentioned, I, I, read, I read that big, thick, 890-page book on the resurrection, and it strengthened my faith. In fact, I remember thinking, I'm a 51-year-old guy, and I'm, you know, I've been a minister for all these years, and I'm always telling people about faith. And I, I thought my faith was pretty strong. I wouldn't have said I was filled with any kind of doubts. But, when I, but by, by uh, facing death and then grappling again with what the biblical texts were about that and then going through the evidence for the, re- the resurrection seeing it was stronger than I ever thought, um, I came out the other side. I said, oh, my goodness, I, 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 you know, my faith is even stronger. How did that happen? I thought, I was, you know, I thought I'd hit bottom, but I, I went deeper. So that's what, make, what makes me say it's cumulative and, and there's degrees of certainty. Nevertheless, I would say 30 years ago I was certain. 
I don't know how you say it. I'm more certain than I was, but I, back then Is I would have possible felt, philosophically. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know what? Look at here. Uh, uh, if if here's a gallon container and yeah. here's a I don't know what you know an eight ounce. Um, both could be full to the top, and yet one is fuller than the other, and yet they're both 100% full. So my guess is your capacity for certainty grows, and you could be just as certain as you were 30 years ago, but some, there's something about your heart that has become more capacious, and, and you're experiencing more... Uh... Some people give me grief now and then about big words. <laughs> uh, do you hear someone who has great words? That was great, so thank you. Thank you for saying that. You blessed me. No, I just want to that. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning bolt, as Mark Twain said. So that was a good lightning bolt. Mm. So thank you for that. Mark Twain said that? Yes, that's, that's he did. It's pretty good, huh? No. Lightning bolts. Other, another question I want to make sure we get to a couple more. What do you see as the explanation for the existence, rise, and growth of other religions? And it's got the, rate, the burden of proof being on the non-believer for the rise of Christianity. I'm not sure I understand the re- What do you think that the second part means, Tom? Well, why don't you go to the first one? Well, we'll what do you see as the explanation for the existence, rise, and growth of other, other world religions? religions in the world. Well, actually, I'm reading a pretty good book right now. It's brand new um, with an essay by Dan Strange, who's a uh, teacher at Oak Hill College in, in London. He, he says that um, this is weird. If Christianity is true, then the growth of other world religions would be, um, how do I say it? He says Christianity subversively fulfills all the other religions, which is a very interesting term. It's a, it's, he's being as positive as he can with still being a critic. When he says subversively fills, he says that all religions, because they don't have Christ, have aspirations that they can't actually... They, they, they make offers they can't really fulfill, and they have aspirations that can't be completely uh, satisfied. Um, so and I, I won't mention any particular religions. A, some religions are after mystical experience. Some are after um, complete obedience and submission to the law. And what he would say is that because they're partial truths, they're, uh, in other words, they, they, they have, because everybody's in the image of God, they've got, they've got part of the truth, you know. However, it's distorted because it, it's not brought to completion in Christ. And therefore... Uh, Christ subversively fulfills other religions, which means he critiques them as false systems and yet uh, shows that what they're really looking for is satisfied in him. So the, the explanation for the existence, rise, and growth of other religions is that people know the truth, but people also reject part of the truth, and world religions are a pastiche of truth and falsehood. I'm not sure... I think what that's saying is the burden of proof is that someone who would say... Looking at well, the rise of Christianity, how do you account for yeah, your non-believer? Yeah. I think that's kind well, of Well, I was trying to say something about that about when I talked about the resurrection. Yeah. I was trying to say, uh, instead of saying uh, Christians have to prove the resurrection, I, I always you come back and say, how did, Christianity did not grow the way any other religion ever grew. Not only did it grow explosively, it didn't grow with a sword. It, you know, it didn't grow through conquest, not for a long time. And then after that, we could argue that it didn't really grow. If you grow by conquest, you, you know, Christians would say you're not really growing. Uh, it, it also came out of, uh, like I said, the Jewish religion, which was very, very odd. N.T. Wright, in that book that I read when I was <laughs> during my rec- recuperation, makes the case that uh, Jews believed, did not believe in an individual resurrection. They be- some Jews, the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, <clears throat> believed there might be a resurrection, a general resurrection at the end of time. But the idea of an individual being resurrected in the middle of history was just incomprehensible. 
And therefore, the idea that when the poor disciples, when, when Jesus died, they were just wishing that he came back, and they, through wishful thinking, they said, well, maybe he's risen from the dead. Uh, N.T. Wright said there is absolutely nothing that would have prepared them to even, even imagine that. Something must have broken through all of their prejudices for them to actually do what they did, which suddenly they say, he rose from the dead, he's the son of God, we all must worship him, and let's die for our faith. He said, what in the world caused that? And he also talks about how you, you can see worldviews change, you can see philosophies change, cultures change, but not in five years. You don't go from... So I think the burden of... And also Christianity is by twice the size of any other faith. So the, the growth and the appeal of Christianity is also, by the way, appeals to the poor. It always has. In New York City, the people who don't like Christianity are the well-off people in the center. If you go out into the highways and byways and you go to the working class and the working people and the poor... They're shouting hallelujah. I mean, that's got to mean something. The fact that it has always resonated with, with the masses like it has. Yeah, I do think the burden of proof is on the non-believer for the rise of Christianity. I agree with that. Okay. Another question? How can the temporary death of Jesus satisfy the punishment for our sin of eternal death? Well, everybody, this is where, this is where we all get into trouble because... Um, and you brought up the word eternal, not me. <clears throat> there's time, there's eternity. We cannot think of eternity without thinking of it at, in terms of duration, right? We say, oh, they're in eternity now. We, we tend to think of eternity as, uh, well, how long has he been in eternity? Oh, I don't know, five years now. <laughs> now, when people die, people die, and we say they're in eternity, and then we imagine them. This just shows how... how, how, how um, impossible it is for us to really understand the concept. You tend to think of your loved ones. Let's say if you believe in heaven, you believe in eternity, and your loved one died five years ago, you say he's been in heaven for five years. You can't have five years in heaven. It can't be done. You're out of time. And so when you get outside of time, you don't have duration anymore. Now, we can't get that. We can't figure that out. But here's what it means. There's two things. The second one answers the question. The first one doesn't. A lot of people say, well, my loved ones are in heaven, and it's been 20, 10 years. But when I die, they'll have waited for 10 years for me. I doubt it. My guess is that Yay, when you, when like you that. get there, we're all going to get there at the yes, same time. Okay. At least it'll seem like it. Everybody's going to turn around and say, yeah. oh, oh, right. Uh, <clears throat> secondly, the book of Revelation says that Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Hmm. And what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. What? You, know, you don't know what that means. No. I don't. Do you? I'm not sure. No. But, uh, I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're confessing. I'm glad you're confessing your sins. What, what, your turn, what Tim. It, what it means is, is that the death of Jesus Christ happened in time, but in some other way, it was a trans... This is the best that theologians come up with. It was a kind of transaction within the being of God, between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was a transaction within the being of God to pay the price so that... When the, when the time had fully come, they could redeem the world. You know, the, the Trinity, the triune God could redeem the world. And so there's something, there's some way in which the sacrifice of Christ happened in eternity and therefore um, can satisfy eternity, can satisfy eternal death. It, it was in, it's infinite in its effects. Okay, I think we're going to just for time wrap it up. It's already okay. time. But I wanted to again thank you, Tim. And uh, let's, again, we want to give him a hand. It's okay. Okay.
I also, I didn't say this today, but I wanted to thank you for many of us, what an inspiration you have been to us in your writings. Um, as a, a, a church at Redeemer, as since we're a church community, we so appreciate Redeemer and what you do, and uh, we've had some cross-pollinization over the years, and so we appreciate yes. so much oh, your yeah. faith community and what you're teaching us. No, we appreciate us. you out here. We know, so, we, we know you. about your work. So, and we have you. a lot of respect for it. Yeah, same here. So thank you again for coming. And I'd like you to just close us in prayer. Sure. If you would, pray for uh, all of us who are here as we seek to try to live out our faith and okay. explore our faith in our city. Let me do that. Um, our Father, we, I pray for every, everyone hearing me right now, everyone who has heard me tonight. Uh, we've tried to describe the indescribable, though you do, we believe as Christians, we believe that in the, in the Bible you have told us a great deal. You've revealed yourself. Uh, tonight we've tried to talk about that. We've looked at it, examined it, thought about it. I pray if uh, anything has been said here tonight that is true and right, um, if it's an accurate description of your heart and your actions and your nature and your being, I pray that uh, everyone here will have their faith strengthened. I pray it will sink in. I pray it will, it will convince us. I pray that tonight has been one very important step in our cumulative journey toward the full assurance of faith in you. And there is nothing greater. There is no wonder, more wonderful resource. There's no greater comfort. There's no greater joy than to be absolutely sure that you love us, that you're there and that you love us. If we really, really knew that, we could face absolutely anything. And I pray that everybody in this room will have made a couple more steps in that direction toward that end. And I pray that you would hear this prayer because we've asked it in Jesus' name. In his name we do pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you all for coming, and uh, we wish you a great night. Uh, blessings.